Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi. It is winter in Connecticut, and <laughs> baby, it's cold outside. Chilly willy. I can't imagine a single thing that is more damagingly cold than... Um, than December in Connecticut. Can you think of a single thing colder than that, Carrie? I sure can. Oh. Do tell. <laughs> well, Sean, do you know the feeling of stumbling upon a weird obsession? Something that you never knew about, but then you have to learn everything you can about it. Once you do learn. Yes, and her name is Laura Linney. <laughs> We don't want to talk about your sexual proclivities here. No. No, it's pure. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Yes. Well, I had that feeling several years ago when I came across a certain cracked article. And I believe it was titled, Six Creepy Places Where Dead Bodies Just Lie Out in the Open. Oh, and one of them was that suicide forest where Logan uh, Paul got in trouble? I'm sure it was, yeah. It's, I mean... Yeah, that's the kind of thing I read in my relaxation time. Uh, so one of the entries on this list was Mount Everest. And it really took me by surprise. I mean, I know everything morbid, I, I like to say. But, but <laughs> this is the, because what I know about Everest is that there's a ton of, I mean, everyone who's died up there is just still there, right? Yes, but I didn't know that. And you probably, you might have learned that from the same cracked article I did, because we were both cracked heads so to speak i don't know i think i read that in some other effed up history book <laughs> yeah well this completely gobsmacked me because it was never something i even thought about and i really couldn't care less about mountaineering um great thing to do uh very <laughs> impressive but i'm not interested whatsoever oh you don't want to get to the top of that uh, everest and see that view of no. clouds i guess i've hiked up one mountain fully like in a day you know in, in a, like a purposeful summiting a mountain hike and it sucked and um <laughs> i'm just not much of a, a mountaineer i think your small you know day climb type mountains can be really fun if it's not too challenging and there's there, also july it was very hot there usually is a great view at the top and you do have a sense of accomplishment um but you didn't die you were never really at risk of dying <laughs> on the way up no um so yeah, it's just not my thing. It's, not, it's nothing I ever thought about. Here is the main part of the entry for Everest in that article. Every year, hundreds of people pay thousands of dollars for the privilege of getting to climb Mount Everest. But what the Nepalese Tourism Board doesn't exactly like to advertise is around 240 climbers, and this was several years ago, have died trying to make the summit, and most of them are still up there. In fact, there is a section of the mountain called Rainbow Valley, where dozens of bodies are visible due to their brightly colored climbing jackets. Wow. Um, do you have any pictures? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could just Google it. Um, and, I, and I will go into that, too. Uh, I don't suggest our listeners go look for it. It's not gory at all. But they're bodies, you know, it's not great. Um, so this idea of there just being a bunch of loose bodies on Everest was just completely wild to me. And so I had to learn more. 
And the idea of specifically mountaineering accidents and especially Everest lore began to wind itself into my brain until it became this kind of weird obsession. Well, <laughs> kind of like the lost cosmonauts and the idea of like space travel accidents. Like it's, it's not anything I'm ever going to do. So it's interesting to learn about. Right. I, I found pictures of Rainbow Valley. I don't necessarily recommend uh, doing so. Is that all skiers or climbers rather? No, those are flags. But if you look up like death on Everest, there's a box right there. I simply couldn't deal with the fact that one of the pinnacles of human achievement, summiting Everest, went hand in hand with basically climbing over the corpses of climbers to get there. As I dove deeper into the subject, I found that the stories of these tragedies were absolutely fascinating. So I'll be covering some of them today, but please, for everyone listening, keep in mind that these accidents, most of them that I'm going to talk about, have impacted those in contemporary times. These are people with close families still out there, so Sean and I are going to be as respectful as possible when relaying this fascinating story to you of two sides of the same coin immense accomplishment and horrific defeat, basically the Titanic of mountaineering. When she said, Sean and I will be respectful. Oh, the <laughs> dagger she stared I at me, listener. <laughs> so Sean, we'll begin with the first people to attempt to summit Everest. For a little history, Mount Everest is located in the Mahalangur Himal subrange, and I probably said that wrong, of the Himalayas, with the China-Nepal border running across its summit point. In Tibetan, the mountain's name is Chomalungma, which means Mother Goddess of the World. Chomalungma, that's fun. Mm -hmm. And in Nepali, the name is Sagarmatha, which has various meanings, but can generally be summed up as like the head in the great blue sky. I'm sticking with Chomalungwa. <laughs> Mount Everest is just over 29,000 feet high. I'm going to mention meters a bit in this, but I'm mostly going to be going by American our fucked up system, so I apologize. Our, like, nonsense <laughs> wizard numbers. Yes. Um, it's actually also getting a touch taller every year thanks to shifting tectonic plates. So the people who first summited Everest did so at a lower altitude than the people summiting nowadays, which well, look, is interesting. Look at that. We stand a tall king. <laughs> this 29,000 feet make it the tallest mountain in the world above sea level, and its awe-inspiring nature began to capture minds around the world in the 1800s, when the British began the Great Trigonometric Survey of India to record the locations, heights, and names of the world's highest mountains. And the invention of cameras also helped because people around the world could actually see what this thing looked like as well and visualize it. Right, and what the uh, corpses frozen at the top of it look like. <laughs> there weren't any corpses at this point, as far as I know. This is where it got the name Everest, by the way, being named after Sir George Everest, who was the former Surveyor General of India. Did he? So what did he have to do with it directly? Um, I think he was part of the ones who kind of started to figure out that it was the tallest mountain because it's not easy. The things that they had to do to measure the height of this mountain is it was just wild. <laughs> But probably the guys who worked for him yes, did that. Yes. So he also, it got named after him. He was the former surveyor general at this point. So he basically 
got this, this important locale named after him just because he used to be the guy's boss, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, well, the perks of being the boss. Yeah. Everest was announced as the official highest mountain and thus the highest point in the world after several years of calculations in 1856. As soon as something is called the biggest or the most or whatever, people immediately want to make their mark on it somehow. Yeah, sure. The largest uh, slice of cheese out in Ohio. (laughs) Sure. As far as anyone knew, no one had ever summited Everest in the history of the world. They didn't have any proof that that had ever happened. So it immediately became the accomplishment that every serious mountaineer coveted. Now, when white people go climb Everest, aren't there like all these Nepalese guys who are just like springing up the mountain ahead of them naked or something? Yes, that comes a little later in the lore. But <laughs> yes, we we have a lot of people taking advantage of the local expertise uh, to sometimes devastating results. Oh, no. And that's because Everest is incredibly inhospitable with serious weather nearly all year round. And because it's so high above sea level, it means that the higher you go on the mountain, the more your body suffers. You can develop altitude sickness, and that can cause symptoms like dizziness, headache, muscle aches, and nausea. People get this a little bit in like just high altitude places like Colorado. Sometimes people get it because the air is thinner. You can also... I've climbed a a very minor mountain in Colorado. Uh, The first part of the Flatirons climb I did with with a buddy while I was out there. A hike, not a climb, to be be clear. Um, And we were totally winded, like... At a certain point, it was. It felt like every twenty steps, we would like yeah. stop and just, <gasps> and and that was not like a, a serious climb. That was yeah. like a walk slightly uphill. That has nothing to do with being in or out of shape. It's just your lungs are craving thicker air. <laughs> you can also get high altitude pulmonary edema or high altitude cerebral edema, and these are known as hape or hase, and these are buildups of fluids in the lungs and brain, respectively. Hape and haste can be extremely dangerous and can even kill you. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, we didn't have much in the way of proper equipment to deal with trying to do this. And there was also the immovable fact that with an altitude of over 8,000 meters, Everest had a death zone near the top, which is the area where the pressure of oxygen is insufficient to sustain human life for an extended period of time. So you say had, but it still has, right? That that was... Yes. They still call that that? Yes, that is the death zone. Uh, there are a few mountains that have that. Um, this is just the tallest one, obviously. But you basically can't really survive. Like, you can't live up there. If yeah. it was perfectly flat or whatever, even if the weather was good, it's still too high up. In this house, the death ro- the death zone is the bathroom. Am I right? Oh, okay. Because <laughs> it's stinky. Yeah. It's the stinky room. Yeah, it's the stinky room. In 1921, English mountaineers George Mallory and Guy Bullock re- discovered the northern approach to the mountain. Uh, they basically mapped a way to the summit from about 23,000 feet up the mountain. And then they had to turn back. During a 1922 expedition, Australian George Finch climbed using supplemental oxygen for the first time, reaching an altitude of 27,300 feet. It was the first time someone used supplemental oxygen on Everest or anywhere? I believe... 
well, that I don't know, but definitely on Everest, and it was the highest anyone had gotten. And supplemental oxygen, just like kind of think of it as a smaller version of scuba gear, you know, like a little An air canister. Yeah. So this was the first time a human was reported to have climbed above 8,000 meters into a death zone. George Mallory made another attempt, but he didn't make it this year. Unfortunately, this was also the time of the first major Everest accident uh, to impact people, as far as we know. This is an anvil, an avalanche on the North Coal. Or... Oh, I was like, an, an anvil? What, <laughs> Wiley Coyote was up there climbing? <laughs> uh, it, an avalanche on the North Coal, and this is like the side um, term. Yeah, it's where Santa lives, I understand. <laughs> it swept uh, seven of the Sherpa porters into a crevasse where they were forced to be left and eventually died or had already been killed. It was a little unclear. Mallory was fully obsessed by this point, uh, referring to the idea of reaching the highest point on Earth as a symbol of man's desire to conquer the universe. Typical. <laughs> he also uttered the famous response to a reporter asking why he wished to climb Everest. Because it's there. That's the only reason anyone can really <laughs> give, right? I mean, it, it sums it up pretty well. In, it's really, although, you know, going to the moon is the same, or sure. Mars is the same answer. Sure. In 1924, George Mallory returned yet again with another group of mountaineers to try and be the first to the summit. Mallory and Jeffrey Bruce gave it a shot, but had to return to camp when weather conditions turned bad. Colonel Felix Norton made the next attempt, manning, managing to reach a bit above 28,000 feet without supplemental oxygen. And you can summit without supplemental oxygen. It's just much harder. And more dangerous. Yes. And uh, Norton couldn't make it to the summit, so Mallory decided he would try again. And he brought along a young expedition member named Andrew Irvine for the final attempt on the summit. If you say so. On June 8th, 1924, they set out for the top of the mountain and never returned. Hey. And it wasn't really clear what had happened to them. I mean, people assumed they had died in an accident or of hate or haste or just passed out somewhere or froze somewhere, you know. Yeah. Mallory's body wouldn't be discovered until 1999 when it was found on the north face of Everest in a snow basin. So his brightly colored jacket wasn't... Uh... <laughs> well, no, it was actually his brightly colored flesh that really popped out. Oh, no. Yeah, so Mallory's body was kind of remarkably preserved despite having literally just lain out in the elements for the better part of a century. Um, I assume most of the reason why Everest's dead are often left out in the open, aside from some of them literally freezing to the sides of the mountain... Is that because of the particular combination of factors that makes it so that bodies on Everest don't decompose the same way they do normally? It's not as graphic to come. It's it's like seeing a mummy in a museum, you know, because they are kind of mummified by the elements. Right. But also, I'm, I'm sure that's a factor that like, oh, it's not that it's not that weird to look at man up. But, um, well, I think they would at least be more determined to cover them up or bury them somehow. Right. But it would if, also if be... If they were actively rotting. It would be hard to get them down because yes. it's hard to just climb this by yourself without carrying anything. 
Yeah. And we will talk about that a little more when it comes to particular uh, deaths. But yeah. And, and again, sometimes they're not found for a very long time. Irvine's body still hasn't been found. And this, this one took like 80 years to find. Um, so most of his back was exposed and it was just flat and white. So the, the guy who was um, looking for this body, he thought it was a long, flat stone initially. And that's what kind of stood out to him. Um, but it was George Mallory. A lot of the skin tends to start looking like porcelain. Huh. Yeah. Instead of, you know, we know like an Egyptian mummy, they're very like dry and brown. Right. Well, they've been in the sand for... Exactly. So this is just another form of mummification. They're basically always frozen. And we actually know from our last episode on Mercy Brown that that can slow or halt normal decomposition. Mm -hmm. Much of his clothing was still intact with the name tags still stitched in bearing the words G. Lee Mallory. They thought this was Irvine at first and then they realized it was the guy. Mm -hmm. Most of his skin was exposed, as I mentioned, and it become bleached white. I couldn't make out his head in the footage because this was for a documentary so i did see it um so i'm not sure if that was intact but you could still see his full back arms and legs and like we mentioned you can find this a picture of this body and most of the main the main bodies that i'll be talking about today um i suggest not looking <laughs> a body's a body even if it's like a bleached white mummy it's not as Horrifying. I mean, listen, this is my perspective. It's not as horrifying to me as just your run-of-the-mill corpse. As all of the Jeffrey Dahmer and Jack the Ripper <laughs> crime scene photos you've looked at? Uh, I've seen the Jack the Ripper. I, I, I try not to find others. Um, so that's yeah, one of the worst. That Jack the Ripper one is really bad. The it Mary, is bad. Mary Kelly, uh, well, I was, and that's one of the first examples of crime scene photography, period. So that's fun. So we'll go into that when we go into Jack the Ripper eventually. Can't wait. Woo. So yeah, so I'll do my best to describe them to you. You know, it's up to you if you want to look up pictures of corpses. I can't tell you yes or no. Yeah, Carrie's already taken on the mental damage <laughs> for you. Well, I had seen them because they were attached to the article and stuff, and I had seen documentaries. I don't look for pictures of dead bodies. But yeah, you, you don't need to see it to like get the story. So Mallory was found with a rope jerk injury around his waist, leading finders to feel that he was roped together with Irvine when one of them slipped and pulled the other one with him. A golf ball sized puncture wound was found in his forehead, which may have indicated that he uh, was using his ice axe trying to like slide down the rope and it had struck a rock and bounced off, fatally hitting him in the head. Well, at least that would end it nice and quick. There's been controversy whether one or both of the men may have made it to the summit before their deaths, making them the true first summiter of Everest, but we'll probably never know unless Irvine's body is ever recovered with his Kodak camera intact, because you would think that he would have taken pictures at the summit if they made it. It's like one of the top of Everest, but it's in the bottom of frame falling out like <laughs> as he tumbles backward. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Um, Kodak has actually provided instructions on how to develop film that old in the specific event that this camera is found. Wow. So, who knows? 
Assorted expeditions uh, continued over the years after the Mallory ones until 1950 when China took control of Tibet and closed the northern route to Western expeditions. Boo! Yeah. This made people begin to search for a route that would move through Nepal, which is now known as the Southern Approach. So there's more than one way to skin a cat, I guess, or go up Everest. I'd, boy, <laughs> between the two, I guess I'd prefer to go up Everest. <laughs> In 1952, Raymond Lambert and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay reached about 28,200 feet up the mountain on the southwest ridge, setting a new altitude record, but still not making it to the summit. However, the next time would be the charm. Edmund Hillary? Mm-hmm. Now, a short side note, you'll hear me mentioning Sherpas or calling someone Sherpa like a title throughout the rest of this episode. The Sherpa people, as Sean mentioned, are an indigenous group living in the Himalayan Valley. And due to their origination in the area, they have near expert experience in mountain climbing, especially in the Himalayas, and eventually on Everest. Because of this expertise, nowadays, uh, they're almost always hired to take part in Everest expeditions. The word Sherpa is often used uh, even elsewhere now to mean mountain guide, kind of like people will say Kleenex to mean tissue, but they are their own ethnic group. And because they live at such a high altitude year round, uh, at the base of Everest, not on the top of it, they are much more accustomed to just surviving in low oxygen and their capabilities on expeditions have proven to be really indispensable since they began in the 1920s. It was with this in mind that Sherpa Tenzing Norgay was invited on another British expedition, expedition in 1953. The first pair of climbers on this expedition made it within 330 feet of the summit, but were forced to turn back due to oxygen problems. It was 330 feet. Just hold your breath. It's, it's a really hard climb once you get past a certain level. It's, I mean, it, the summit is like... Barely more than a point. And 330 feet when you can't breathe is a long way to go. Yeah, and it's mostly like up, like up a yeah. cliff face. Mm -hmm. On May 28th, 1953, the next attempt was made by New Zealander Edmund Hillary, along with Tenzing Norgay. They reached the summit at 8, 1130 local time on May 29th. Initially, Hillary called it a team effort and refused to state who had truly summited the mountain first, which I thought was pretty cool of him. Good dude. But Tenzing did write in his 1955 autobiography that Hillary had indeed taken the first step onto the summit. Oh, even better. So it like was him and he's like, yeah, one small step for uh, <laughs> well, all of us, right guys? <laughs> pretty much. It was a pretty cool thing to do. Tenzing, however, was the first person to have his picture taken at the summit, as Hillary uh, had basically been like, nah, I'm good. This guy, what, is he, me? <laughs> He's like, what, for Facebook? Why? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine turning down that photo op, like, the first person ever to be like, yeah, I know I've done it. He's probably just cold. <laughs> Coming across the first person they saw after their summit, Hillary said, well, George, we knocked the bastard off. And you guys might as well turn around and give up. Someone did it already. Oh, yeah. Hillary was immediately made a knight commander of the British Empire, and the news of his achievement made it back to Britain on the day of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, called a coronation gift by the press. 
And once someone had already done it, everyone knew there was no point in just repeating something so stupidly dangerous, and no one ever climbed Everest ever again. Well, I did want to add that Tenzing Norgay wasn't chewbacca He was ineligible for knighting since he was a Nepalese citizen, but Elizabeth did give him the George Medal awarded for gallantry. And they were both, uh, they received awards in Nepal, too. Throughout the rest... Chewbacca. <laughs> I'm still bitter. I'm still bitter, Sean. They didn't give a shit about Chewbacca. He's the co-pilot. Yeah. Yeah. He deserved a medal, too. Anyway, throughout the rest of the 50s and 60s, others summited Everest, including the firsts from many other countries. In America, our first summiter was Jim Whitaker, who reached the top on May 1st, 1963. Things were going fairly well, and only a handful of people died on the mountain during this time in accidents or of altitude sickness. But then the first major tragedy occurred on Everest with the 1970 Mount Everest disaster. A documentary crew had arrived from Canada to follow Yoichiro Miura, a Japanese alpinist, and his attempt to ski down Mount Everest. No, stop. <laughs> he yeah. did. He did manage to ski 6,600 feet down the mountain, but seven Sherpa members of the team were killed during an avalanche on the Kumbu Icefall. Oh, I thought you were going to say he just ran into him. He's like, pizza slice, pizza slice. <laughs> Now, the icefall is located at the, at the head of the Kumbu Glacier and, as an icefall, is characterized by relatively rapid flow and a chaotic crevassed surface caused in part by gravity. Is, is an icefall a frozen waterfall? I think it's more because the ice falls a lot. Oh, so, so <laughs> it's, worse. It's basically giant towers of ice, and these are called seracs, and they can suddenly collapse with little to no notice or fall. They send chunks raging in size from that of cars to large houses tumbling down the glacier. Oh, I thought you were going to say from cars to pebbles, but no, it was the other direction. Oh, cars I mean, I'm sure the small... there are pebble-sized ones, but like... Cars were the small end. <laughs> because the icefall is located between Everest Base Camp and the next stop up, Camp 1, there were many people in the area at the time of the avalanche. Those that were killed during this avalanche were Mima Norbu, Nima Dorji, Shuring Tarki, Pasang, Kunga Norbu, and Kami Chiring. Kayak Chiring was killed a few days later by ice falling from another Serac. Jeez. So this is a the first notable mass casualty event during a climbing expedition on Everest post the first summit, but unfortunately, it would not be the last. So this was all in service of, what was it? Some guy sliding down the mountain on his ass on a lunch tray? Well, that was just one of the <laughs> the people. But he but the Sherpas that died, I believe, were on his team. But there were other teams of people trying to summit. Okay, so I would I would have pictured this as being too early for like the Everest tourism, but... Uh, this is where it kind of begins, but I'll go into when it really takes foot with people that may not be the most experienced experienced of mountaineers but even at this point is there always basically at least one or more teams climbing the mountain yes yeah some once or you know a few years in there no one summits but there's always people climbing except for a couple of years which i will also talk about that are impacted by other tragedies or covid 
Another avalanche claimed the lives of six more people in September uh, 1974 during the French West Ridge Direct Expedition. Five of the casualties were Sherpas, which would be a continuing trend in the Everest tragedies. Um, This is the largest group of people by far to be lost during expeditions, the hired Sherpas. Um. But I thought, like, they get hired because they're good at the mountain. So how are they the ones they who end up are, dying? They are, but they're also the ones doing so much of the work. They haul most of the stuff, uh, including the tents. And, I mean, I, I've seen pictures of them with, like, a dozen folding chairs on their backs. So they're also moving slower. And they're also the ones that set up all of the rope lines and fixed cables and ladders across crevasses before the most um, optimal climbing time for the other climbers. So they're there when the weather's not necessarily great either. And I guess the guy who's, I'm not blaming the victim, but when you've done something a million times, you're more likely to relax a little bit. They definitely have more confidence in what they do, yeah. Those killed in this avalanche were expedition leader Gerard de Fasu and Sherpas Lakpa, Sanu Wangal, Pemba Dorje, Nawang Latuk, and Nima Wangchu. This expedition had arrived late in August, hoping that they'd miss the bulk of monsoon season and would have good weather for their ascent. But they bet wrong, with monsoons hitting hard as the climbers were spread across the three high camps on Everest. And what does a monsoon look like when you're on the mountain? Is it just wind? Uh, Blizzard conditions, terrible storms, uh, and this caused an avalanche. The six killed in this avalanche were never found, but their memories stood as a reminder that the perfect timing when it comes to weather is very, very essential if you want to summit Everest. Now, do we know where most of these people probably just crushed and kind of instantly killed, or are you are you freezing to death as people can't find you? Um, I assume because this was an avalanche, they yeah, they probably got buried or knocked off of the face of the mountain or into crevasses, which could be hundreds of feet deep. In 1979, Hanlor Schmatz was climbing with her husband, Gerhard. Uh, They respectively became the fourth woman to summit Everest and the oldest man at the time to summit Everest at 50 years old. Wow. While descending, Schmatz, along with American Ray Janet, stopped to bivouac, uh, or basically set up a tent shelter, at 28,000 feet up the mountain, despite their Sherpa guides begging them to keep going. Just Schmatz, not the uh, husband? I think they were uh, in separate areas at this time. Well, maybe she's, you know, maybe she she left her, the, the 50-year-old, to hang out with Renee over here. Right. I don't know. <laughs> well, he died during the night, so not a great idea. Uh, the Sherpa with Schmatz and Schmatz herself tried to continue the descent, but at 27,200 feet, Schmatz sat down, requested water from her Sherpa, and died. Where, where Where's Ray? He died. Oh, no, sorry. Where's her husband? Yeah, I uh, I don't know where he was. I think he was with uh, different people. I don't know why they were not together. What? What? What the hell happened? <laughs> he went down without her, and then she died. This is all very suspicious. And she was with another guy. Yeah, it was someone on their team. And then they both wind up dead by 
you know, quote, mountain misadventure. I don't, I don't think you need anything else on Everest to kill you. I don't know. All right. Well, put put a suspicious pin in that one. Let's let's move along. Well, just a, an interlude, along with the weather conditions preserving bodies and thus not making it as horrifying an emergency to remove them from sight. Well, and yet making it a more horrifying place in total, right? Sure. Because I mean, any place where there's corpses is horrifying, but... Yeah. It, You're not on the body farm, you know, the forensic uh, training area where they just put corpses out to see how they rot. Right. So it's not as bad, I guess. But why do they just leave corpses on the mountain? Um, It is incredibly difficult to get anything off the mountain not under its own power. Missions to recover bodies have turned deadly themselves, and many climbers just requests before their climb for their families to leave their bodies on the mountain if they don't make it because it's usually not worth the risk to a human life and aside from uh that you know it's just hard to bury them in snow here's what's hilarious about people who want to climb mount everest they say it's too risky to go up the mountain to recover their bodies but it's not too risky for them to go up the mountain for... Because they're under their own power. It's hard to to literally carry dead weight down a cliff. I know, but still, they're doing it and taking on the risk for no reason at all. Let's go back to Hanalor. Uh, her body remained where she had died for years, propped against her backpack. And it's weird. I mean, it's like just sitting there. This was only about 328 feet away from Camp 4, which means climbers could likely see her as they rested at camp before their big summit push. She would almost look like she was resting too if it weren't for her head being exposed, which slowly turned skeletal over time while her thick snow clothes faded in the sun. Oh, God. And for a long time, her hair would even still blow in the wind. Just a skeleton with blowing hair sitting there and, against a rock. And like snow, like puffer puffer jacket and puffer pants. Yeah. Two members of a Nepalese police expedition died in 1984 while attempting to retrieve her body, and that ended uh, further attempts. Lene Galmogard, the first Scandinavian woman to sub at Everest, wrote about this in her book, quote, It's not far now. I can't escape the sinister guard. Approximately a hundred meters above Camp 4, she sits leaning against her pack as if taking a short break. A woman with her eyes wide open and her hair waving in each gust of wind. It's the corpse of Hannelore Schmatz, the wife of the leader of the 1979 German expedition. She summited but died descending. Yet it feels as if she follows me with her eyes as I pass by. Her presence reminds me that we're here on the conditions of the mountain. So that just kind of clarified if her husband was the leader of the expedition, she might have summited near the beginning of the group and headed down without him as he waited for everyone else to summit. That's kind of a common thing if you're the head of an expedition. Oh, okay. So it's not that he was leading the charge down, like, see you later, honey. I don't think so. Probably not. Schmatz's remains were likely eventually blown over the edge of the Kangsheng face as they don't sit where they were anymore. This Maybe she wanted to change the scenery. <laughs> this would only be the lead up to what remained the deadliest season on Everest for years and the most famous Everest tragedy thus far, the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. 
will take the, cle- the <laughs> will take the treacherous climb after the break. Roland Demerick, eat your heart out. <laughs> did you direct that? No. Well, who did? Some guy. (laughs) If you like weird and strange history, then I have the podcast for you. My name is Brenda, and I'm the host of Horrifying History. Are you into the dark side of history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We talk about the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, cursed items, and unsolved mysteries, and then we look into the science and documentation to see where does the truth actually lie. Want to get spooky with us? Get your horrifying history fix by subscribing to Horrifying History, which you can find on any major podcast provider. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had run through a brief history of all of Everest as it relates to humanity, and um, Caroline was now getting to the grisliest disaster in the mountain's history. What is this, 1996, Carrie? Well, to this point, yes, this is 1996, so we're back to the tallest mountain in the world, and after the initial shock of learning, initially, that Mount Everest is littered with corpses... My next step was to research Everest disasters themselves, which led me to a pretty famous book called Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, who also wrote famous uh, books like Into the Wild and Under the Banner of Heaven. Well, he's always going into things, huh? Yeah. That uh, that book is going to be my main source for this next segment, um, Into Thin Air is, though there are portions that are contested by fellow climbers, and I'll be sure to note when that applies. The important context for the 1996 disaster is what Sean had brought up before. The early 1990s brought climbing Everest to be like a more commercial venture that more than just the most skilled mountaineers in the world could undertake. It's basically more of a question of you have to be in shape, obviously. You need the money to do it. Right, because it costs like thousands and thousands of dollars. Rob Hall, a New Zealander who had climbed the Seven Summits, which are the world's highest seven mountains, in a record-breaking seven months, had formed the high-altitude guiding business Adventure Consultants in 1992. And this is kind of the beginning of more of the commercialization of Everest. 
because of course, it, it, uh, if you are it's the best, happen. no, but I was going to say, of course, if he's one of the best climbers in the world, that of course means he knows how to run a hospitality business, <laughs> keep people safe, uh, handle logistics. Well, you know, by 1996, uh, Hall had earned a, a ton of respect. He was one of the biggest names in the business, and he had guided 39 climbers to the top of Everest. And of course it helped because the per person cost was $65,000. So that helps keep you in business. $65,000? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The per person cost is like a Range Rover? Yeah. A lot of people get um, sponsored somehow if they're not rich or they don't have the money themselves. John Krakauer was hired to write about it. A couple of the other people, one was like a correspondent for NBC Online in the very early days. This is only 1996. But yeah, you know, you would get sponsorships a lot of the time. Could be a Corvette if you didn't get any options. <laughs> Until in 1996, Hall hadn't suffered a single casualty during his climbs, including the Sherpas, and that was pretty remarkable. He became sought out for his reliability and safety and even garnered an MBE from the Queen in 1994. Yeah, it sounds like these earlier expeditions had been throwing the Sherpas over like as ballast. <laughs> like just, we need to lose some weight. In Rob Hall's wake, though, many other guiding businesses promising to get climbers to the top of Everest for a hefty price also popped up, including Mountain Madness, led by American Scott Fisher. Now, that's not a group I want to spend, gave $65,000 to take me up a dangerous mountain. Mountain Madness? Really? Yeah. And, and Scott Fisher was kind of more of like a, a devil-may-care counterpart to the cautious Rob Hall. He was like a swaggering American guy. A Zach Bagans, if you will. <laughs> He's played by Jake Gyllenhaal in the movie, so that should kind of sum it up. This led to what began to be a glut on the mountain in 1996 with 30 different teams fighting to make it to the summit in the same tiny amount of time. It's become common belief that early May is really the best time to summit Everest, along with like maybe autumn nowadays. Do people now only use basically that southern passage the one no they'll use both uh it really depends on who they're going with like what teams what country they got the rights to go with because you have to get permits um there are certain aspects of each that are hard and it's kind of like what what are you best suited for what kind of climbing you're best suited for and when it's crowded and i know it's still like this today this disaster didn't deter anyone um is, is it a lot of like water slide waiting? You know what I mean? Like, we'll wait for yeah. the next group to get far enough ahead. And that can be dangerous too. And we'll talk about why. The weather on Everest, much like when we go out to Jamesport in Long Island, it's notoriously difficult to predict. But in early May, you're hitting just before monsoon season, but like when the peak is actually visible and clear, which is important because you want to see what you're going for and you want to see... The view, I guess. I mean, if you just keep going up, won't you get there eventually? <laughs> it's also not as unbearably cold as in the winter months. Um, it's still unbearably cold, but not as. So it's a combination of these factors, more people climbing the mountain than ever, belief in it being the perfect time weather-wise to climb, the climb itself becoming more com- commercialized, um, these things helped lead to the tragedy that would become the 1996 disaster. Krakauer, as we mentioned, he was on Rob Hall's team. Uh, he was assigned about, 
He was assigned to writing about climbing Everest for Outside Magazine, which as far as I know is still around. That's the gay magazine. (laughs) That's out. (laughs) Oh, my mistake. (laughs) So he, and eventually we, the audience, would get a first-person perspective on what would become the deadliest season in Everest history to that point. It was later thought that perhaps the additional scrutiny that the outside article would be putting adventure consultants under was one of the reasons that Rob Hall pushed so hard for a success during this particular climb. Um, The movie definitely posits that. More like other characters talking about it, not Rob Hall saying it himself, but he really wanted to succeed. He had the eyes of the world on him and, you know, to keep doing this year after year, you need the money. So you need people to keep coming. But when the eyes of the world are on you, it's a great time not to kill a bunch of people. Well... Get a bunch of people killed? I don't think... I... There are some bad decisions made, but I don't think Rob Hall is to blame for what happened to his team. Okay. Along with Krakauer, there were many other climbers who had their own reasons for wanting to make it to the top. On Rob Hall's team, that included Dr. Seaborn Beckweathers... Uh, he just goes by Beckweathers. Dr. Seaborn Illnesses Beckweathers. <laughs> He's Well, he is a pathologist, and he was making a bid for the Seven Summits, but had never been above 8,000 meters before. So this would have been his first of the summits? Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if all of them are over 8,000 meters, but um, he wasn't, he, he had never been in a death zone, and that'll be important. Uh, Also on the team was Yasuko Namba, who was trying to bag her seventh summit Mm. and also become the oldest woman to summit Everest. And Doug Hansen, who had made it within hundreds of feet of the summit a year before, but had been turned back by Hall due to bad weather. So again, Hall was very cautious. And even when you have someone paying and, you know, you can try to at least somewhat guarantee they'll make it. He still turned him around in uh, the name of safety. And so that guy's just like, well, I'll sell another one of my racehorses. <laughs> he was unfortunately just a mailman. He worked three jobs to make enough money to return in 1996. No. And Hall, still feeling guilty for having denied him his dream in the name of safety, gave him a hefty discount. Still paid thousands and thousands of dollars, though. Adventure Consultants was led by Rob Hall and guides Mike Groom and Andy Harris, as well as lead Sherpa or Sardar Ang Dorji. Mountain Madness was ushering other paying clients up the mountain as well, including Charlotte Fox, who had climbed all 53 of the 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado, and she had also done two 8,000-meter peaks as well before, so she had some experience with death zones. Mountaineer Lanny Gommelgaard, who we mentioned before, talking about um, the body of Hannelore Schmatz. And socialite Sandy Hill Pittman, who was the one writing for NBC. They were all led by Scott Fisher and guides Neil Beidelman and Anatoly Bukriv and Sardar Lapsang Jangbu Sherpa. There were others on a Taiwanese expedition, including one team member who had died following following a fall on the Lahotse face on May 9th, and some others um, on a IMAX documentary expedition led by David Brashears. So there's wow. a lot of people on the mountain. I wonder if I saw that documentary at the aquarium. You might have, yeah. 
Initially, Rob Hall tried to lay claim to the May 10th summit date because it was like a good luck date for him. uh, And it also looked to be the best weather-wise. But Mountain Madness and the South African team also determined that they would share the day. This would eventually lead to a gridlock on the path, especially at the tenuous Hillary Step, which is a nearly vertical rock face between the South Summit and True Summit, and basically the final big challenge before reaching the top of the mountain if you're on the southeast route. First summited by Edmund Hillary. Exactly. That's why it's named after him. Uh, This step was partially destroyed in a 2015 earthquake, by the way, but I think part of it remains. Shortly after midnight on May 10th, adventure consultants as well as Mountain Madness and some other climbers began a summit attempt from Camp 4. They encountered delays at the balcony. Um, I think that's somewhat before the Hillary step. It kind of speaks for itself. It's an overhang sort of place. And also the Hillary step due to the amount of people and the lack of fixed line having been previously placed. So people are trying to put in line as climbers are climbing up because no one had summited before them that year. And this cost climbers hours of time where they just stood around and used up their oxygen. Some climbers turned back at this point, giving up on their summit bid because they felt like they wouldn't make it in time. And it would be the best decision any of them would make. Guide Anatoly Bukriv was the first to summit that day at 1.07 p.m. without the use of supplemental oxygen. This choice was questioned by many as it felt that he wouldn't be as dependable a guide without oxygen, but he refused to use it. Is, is, are, do a lot of these Sherpas summit without uh, air tanks? A lot of Sherpas do. This was not a Sherpa. This was just a guide. Anatoly, um, Russian perhaps? So... It, it definitely comes up, and Krakauer brought it up as well. Rob Hall, John Krakauer, Andy Harris, Neil Beidelman, Yasuko Namba, and a couple of the Mountain Madness clients summited around 2 p.m., which had been previously de- designated as the last safe time to turn around to reach Camp 4 again before nightfall. So, so, th- so they're hitting it at 2. Right. So as long, okay, as long as nothing else goes wrong... They turned back to descend along with the other Mountain Madness clients, but Rob Hall hung back to see Doug Hansen, the mailman, to the summit. He was determined to get him there this year. Scott Fisher of Mountain Madness didn't summit until 3.45 no! p.m. He was exhausted um, and exhibiting signs of suffering from either hape or haste, maybe both. This is a customer? No, this is the leader of Mountain Madness. Oh, And um, he had also had to, like, bring a climber down to one of the camps and then come back up. So he was bushed, and he still came up to the summit. Rob Hall, at this point, it's so late, he tried to turn Hansen back yet again because Hansen had also run out of his supplemental oxygen. But he was desperate to fulfill his dream, and it seems like Hall was just too good of a guy to break his heart a second time. So he helped him. And Hansen struggled, but he finally made it to the summit sometime after 4 p.m. This is two hours past the safe time. Yeah. Did you say good guy or good guide? Guy. Because a good guide would say, <laughs> let's get down the mountain. Yeah. I think this is more of, um, he was a good, he was a nice guy, you know. 
Becca Weathers had left the line during the ascent due to fission problems, likely triggered by an eye surgery he'd had years before. He had no clue that it would um, come back to <laughs> bite him, I guess, but he was basically, yeah, blinded. At this point, he's still sitting on the balcony waiting for Rob Hall to come back down, which he said he had, and he was, he was blind. He couldn't move. He didn't leave this spot until much later where he was picked up by guide Mike Groom on his descent. After Doug Hansen's summit, Hall and Hansen became stuck at the Hillary Step without any supplemental oxygen. And Hall may have been able to make it back down, but Hansen was a wreck at this point and he needed oxygen desperately. Guide Andy Harris, already exhibiting signs of altitude sickness, was under the belief that there weren't any supplemental oxygen canisters stashed at the South Summit, even though there were four that had been stashed previously. He was just like confused and sort of delirious. He didn't realize. He wouldn't like believe it for some reason. There's not enough uh, masks for four of us and a giant steak. (laughs) You know, he's doing the the cartoon hallucinations. (laughs) The mirage thing. He was starting to get really confused and he headed up back up to the South Summit to try and assist Hall and Hansen. So even though he's suffering himself, he he tried to help. Meanwhile, guide Anatoly Bukriev, then this is on the Mountain Madness team, he had descended in front of all of his clients to reach Camp 4 by 5 p.m. So this is another thing that Krakauer brings up and some other people bring up. What he like left them behind? He descended before them, yeah. Is that standard procedure, like, to make sure the way is safe, or did he basically I, bail on I them? don't think so. The reasons he did this and hadn't climbed down with his clients, or any of them, are disputed, particularly by Bukreev himself in Krakauer. Um, he, Bukreev had said he was, he was getting everything ready and getting oxygen to try and bring up back up to people and stuff. Krakauer thought that he should have been with the clients. Either way, he was there first. By this time, the weather began to become severe, and this was very unexpected. Wait, it was unexpected that the weather would be severe on Mount Everest? (laughs) Uh, In this fashion, they weren't expecting a big storm. That's why they climbed that day. And it was in sharp comparison to the, you know, cold and somewhat windy conditions earlier in the day, but very clear those high on the mountain still could see a dramatic thundering blizzard beginning to roll in. Basically the worst conditions possible to climb in, to climb anywhere, but especially here. Can you imagine? It's like uh, Lord of the Rings when yeah. friggin' when Soruman is sending the, the storms. Yeah. And you can like see down into it because you're as high as like an airplane, basically. Oof. Snow pellets were pummeling the climbers on 70 mile per hour winds, and it was hard to see anything through the cover. Climbers began to get lost, including Beck Weathers, Yasuko Namba, Charlotte Fox, Sandy Hill Pittman, guide Mike Groom, and others wandering around till they could no longer walk. They huddled about 66 feet from the steep drop-off of the Kangsheng face. So it's a miracle that they didn't just walk right off, off the mountain. So if the visibility drops, the trail's not like well-defined. You know, especially since there weren't a lot of previously fixed ropes this year either. It's also a problem. 
Does that mean there had been, but they've been blown off the mountain since, or? I don't know if there's all, like, there might not also be rope everywhere, you know, maybe just on places like the Hillary Step or things like that. But if you're just in an area where you can kind of walk, you might not need it. Krakauer reached Camp 4, but was almost totally snowblind, and that's basically from the sun reflecting off the surface of the snow. Oh, I thought it was just from your eyeballs, like freezing. <laughs> that happens too. People have had their um, eyelids frozen shut and they have to kind of like break them apart again. Bukreve set out at this point to try and rescue the others, realizing that they were still up on the mountain. Though his prior decision to descend without his clients had been criticized, all agree that Bukreve's heroics on the night of May 10th are to be commended. Yeah, once he put his beard down, he was <laughs> he was in action. He located the group on the Kangsheng face, who still included Fox and Pittman, Groom, and a couple others that were still able to walk, had set off to find help, and he pulled them back to camp four one by one under his own power. Yasuko Namba and Beck Weathers were seen as being so close to death that they couldn't be prioritized. Near midnight, the blizzard began to clear in the area and the group could better see camp four. At 4.43 a.m. on May 11th, so this is about 12 hours after Doug Hansen made it to the summit. Yeah. Rob Hall radioed base camp to say he was on the South Summit and had somehow miraculously survived a night in a horrific storm at almost 9,000 meters above sea level. At the summit? Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Was he in a, like a little tent or something in, inside a wampa uh, no. snow beast? No. Just huddled up. A tauntaun? <laughs> he reported that Andy Harris had reached himself and Hansen, but that Hansen was now gone and Harris was missing. Mm. Uh, the movie represents this as Hansen falling, I think, somewhere near a crevasse and Harris um, starting to get hypothermia and sliding off of the face of the mountain. But we don't really know. Hall didn't go into detail. He could not breathe his bottled oxygen because his regulator had become choked with ice. And by 9 a.m., he'd fixed his oxygen mask, but had indicated that his hands and feet had become frostbitten, and he was having trouble traversing the fixed ropes as a result of this. Oh, no. And, I mean, they can't, we've already covered, they can't get bodies off the mountain. No. Later that afternoon, he radioed base camp and requested they call his pregnant wife, Jan, on the satellite phone. As those at base camp held the satellite phone up to the radio... Jan and Rob had their final conversation, during which they chose a name for their unborn child, and he reassured her that he was reasonably okay, saying, sleep well, my sweetheart, please don't worry too much. I'm going to cry over here. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, yeah. That's dark. Sherpa Ang Dorji and another Sherpa from a different team tried to climb the 3,000 feet to rescue Hall. But another storm began to hit, and they stopped only when it was clear that they could absolutely climb no higher with any chance of success. Dorje, heartbroken, radioed back to camp to tell them the news, and they had the horrific task of, t- of calling Rob to let him know no help was going to come this day. It was clear that there was no hope that he would survive another night. As Hall himself was prone to saying, It's like being on the moon. 
Rob Hall froze to death shortly after the call in his sleep. Was Rob Hall the one who had wanted so badly to get up to the mountain again? Like this was his second year in a row, that guy? No, he was the one who was waiting for that client. He's the head of... He's the of, head of uh, yeah. Mountain Crazy. Yeah, and Doug Hansen had made it, uh, but he was gone, which, you know, probably succumbed to some sort of accident. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, another client on Hall's team, Stuart Hutchison, one of those who had turned back after the log jam on the Hillary step, went back to the cold to try and recover Weathers and Namba. He found both were shockingly still alive in terms of like a pulse, but severely frostbitten and completely unable to move. After consulting with Sherpa Lopsang, it was determined that they could not be saved by the camp survivors of Camp 4, and there was no other choice but to leave them. Mm. Family members were notified. It was the end. However, Beck Weathers somehow regained consciousness later in the day and just walked back to Camp 4 alone under his own power, suffering from blindness, severe hypothermia, and severe frostbite. With that name, of course, <laughs> of course he did. And it should be mentioned that I'm picturing Beck Bennett from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh, picture Josh Brolin. That's who played him in the movie. Great. Mm-hmm. Even better. <laughs> The next morning, a storm collapsed Weathers' tent, and once again, the other climbers thought he died. Krakauer discovered he was still alive when the survivors began to evacuate Camp 4, and he was ushered down to Camp 2 with the help of eight healthy climbers across dif- different expeditions. So when you say people figured he had died, did they, they looked up from below and saw the tent they had seen the night before was collapsed, or were they closer well, to Well, they probably him? peeked in and saw that he looked like he was dead. Wow. He would lose his nose, right hand, half his right forearm, and all of the fingers on his left hand to frostbite. But he somehow did survive. That's incredible. You could see pictures of him like his nose is completely black. And you have to wait basically a certain amount of time until you like operate on dead tissue like that. What's a certain amount of time? Like a couple of days? I don't know. But like you can you can see that a couple of days later his his skin is still black. Like I don't I guess you have to wait. I can't you can't just cut it off. And then you don't have the option of leaving the useless nose there. You do have to take it off eventually. Yes, it is dead, dead skin and muscle. And um, they... <laughs> This could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I read it right. They regrew him a nose using his forehead skin and then just like put it on. So nowadays he has a nose. You can tell that it's a little messed up, but he does have a nose. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, they're growing ears on mice's back too, right? (laughs) Yeah. So the head of Mountain Madness, Scott Fisher, and another climber were located on May 11th as well, but Fisher's condition was so bad that they could only attempt to make him comfortable. Bukreev later tried to rescue Fisher, and this is after rescuing a bunch of other people, so he would be going back up 3,000 feet or something to uh, the summit. We were too hard on this guy. This guy is working his ass off. But he found his frozen body on the balcony around 7 p.m., which, again, is so late to be up on the mountain. Yeah. So he's he's once again taking massive risks, just trying to make this right, essentially. Yeah. Bukreev covered Scott Fisher with his backpack and later buried him during a climb the next year. 
Hall's body was found a couple weeks later by Ed Viesters and other mountaineers from the IMAX expedition. Hall was left where he died at the request of his wife, who said that she thought he was where he would like to have stayed. Well, he might have preferred coming home to you. His remains, I should say. Viesters stated in the film that upon discovering Hall's body, he sat down and cried beside it, mourning his dead friend. Hall remained on the mountain, but his wedding band was brought back down to Jan. I'm unsure whether his body is still located where it was found. I've read conflicting accounts, both that it is and that it hasn't seen in years. I'm not sure like what the timing is on those either, but all I know is that it's still on Everest. The bodies of Andy Harris and Doug Hansen were never found. Yasuko Namba's body was discovered by Bukreve the next year, and he constructed a cairn around it to protect from scavenging birds. Mm. Later in 1997, Namba's husband funded an operation to bring her body down from the mountain, which was successful. Because again, you have to also like pay people to do this and take the risk and everything. Right. It's a lot. So that's kind of the main story of the 1996 expedition. The most horrible thing is like knowing people are still alive. You could still get them medical treatment, but there's just, you're, you're looking at them and going, well, there's no way we can actually move them. Yeah. And if we stay here any longer, we're going to die. Yeah. That's got to be the most horrible moment. Yeah. One body that has become morbidly famous on Everest is another from the 1996 expedition, that of so-called green boots, believed to be Indian climber Sewang Paljor. This body is called green boots because of the neon green boots it wears, along with insulated snow gear. The body is curled in a limestone alcove cave at about 27,900 feet up the mountain and has become a notorious grim mile marker along the north route for climbers who spot it. I've actually heard of that before, of green boots, yeah. Has its own Wikipedia page. It was first recorded on video in May 2001 by climber Pierre Paparon. It was reported to be missing from view in 2014, possibly spotted again in 2017 when a body was discovered hanging alongside a tent and other debris off the side of a cliff. Now, again, like things on Everest are always changing. Um, Things get blown around after years. And also global warming is causing things to melt, um, things to shift and move. And that's probably what happened here. Um, I should note just because, you know, I'm, I don't want to be disrespectful. Just because it's Christmas time, I do want to mention that what's child, what child is this is to the tune of Green Boots. <sighs> and that's an interesting note. <sighs> green sleeves, Sean. Green sleeves. Oh! Paljor was wearing green boots on the day he attempted a summit. And unfortunately, that day was May 10th, 1996, the day of the storm. He was caught in the same blizzard as the others as he descended. Paljor's brother, Thien Lee, recalled discovering the Green Boots story on the internet in 2011. Quote, I was really upset and shocked, and I really didn't want my family to know about this. Honestly speaking, it's really difficult me, for me to even look at the pictures on the internet. I feel so helpless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, it's not, it's not completely certain that it's Paljor, um, because I think he... 
at this point, he was kind of frozen on his side face down into the mountain. So you couldn't really tell, but. But how many guys are wearing neon green boots? Yeah. Another climber's body also received a nickname, that of Sleeping Beauty. This climber, Frances Arsene Diev, uh, she died in 1998 during her descent after summiting Everest. Her husband also tragically died from a likely fall while attempting to rescue her. She was discovered in her last moments by Ian Woodall and Kathy O'Dowd, who abandoned their chance at the summit, which was only 300 meters above them, to stay with her in her final minutes. Oh my God, you're going to make me cry again. (laughs) I think he had summited previously. Um, But yeah, there was nothing they could do for her but just keep her company. Frostbite turned her face smooth, white, and waxy, and her purple jacket was clearly visible to climbers passing by. She was dubbed afterward Sleeping Beauty, as it appeared she was simply asleep in the snow. In 2007, so this is almost 10 years later, Woodall relocated her body and dropped it to a lower location on the face, ceremonially removing it from view. And that happens sometimes instead of like a typical burial because it's hard to again dig um they'll lower bodies into crevasses where they can't be seen arsentia's um lower or push because you're not getting a crane this was this was specifically that he had dropped it to a so i think like he uh used rope probably arsentia's son paul recalled how awful it was to see photos of his mother's body online quote It's like being really embarrassed, like being called on by your teacher, but not knowing how to read. It's horrible. So that was a really interesting way to describe it. One of the bodies may have also inadvertently led to tragedy. In 2006, solo British mountaineer David Sharp was found in a hypothermic state in the area dubbed Green Boots Cave. Uh, He was found by climber Mark Inglis and his crew. Um, Inglis went on with his descent after radioing for advice on how to help and he couldn't really do anything. Um, there's footage you can see of him in in a documentary that was being filmed and he's just his, like he is barely moving. You could tell that he's alive. Barely. Uh, is it called Green Boots Cave? Cause that's like where Green Boots was or? (laughs) Yeah. So... Sharp died of his hypothermia some hours later, and in that time, approximately three dozen climbers passed Sharp as he sat dying and capturing him on film a number of times. But many of these climbers, unfortunately, likely mistook the dying man for the deceased Green Boots, knowing that there was a body in that cave, and passed him by. Oh my God. Because you're used to seeing bodies on Everest. He wasn't, he was barely moving for hours imagine if you got a video of what you thought was green boots and then you're like and he's still a lot when you look at it you're like still moving david sharp was only 820 feet above camp four but extreme cold fatigue lack of oxygen and the sunset made a descent almost impossible mark inglis was severely criticized after sharp's death by the media and professionals including sir edmund hillary himself the first. Yeah, for not having helped Sharp. But Inglis countered that he was a double amputee. That was part of his thing, you know, of going to the summit of Everest. He wanted to 
accomplish that as a double amputee. And he was simply the best known of the 30 to 40 other climbers who had passed by Sharp without helping. Yeah. Hey, everyone else who passed him had both arms. Yeah. I think he doesn't have both legs. But again, like, how was he going to carry him down, you know? How was he carrying himself? Um, that I don't know. I don't know if he had like a Sherpa with him. I'm not quite sure. Inglis also stated that Sharp was ill-equipped, lacking proper gloves and enough supplementary oxygen. A Sherpa also tried to help and get him to move for about an hour, um, but he could not get Sharp to stand or even like lean on him to move. So he had to leave him. Sharp's body remained on the mountain, but was removed from sight in 2007. Adventurer Noel Hanna noted in May 2014 that along with green boots, several of the famous Everest bodies had disappeared, as previously he estimated up to 10 were visible just on the push to the summit. But that year he only counted two or three. Sadly, 2014 would be the beginning of what is the deadliest stretch on Everest ever, with two horrific seasons in a row. Really? Yeah, even more than 1996. Because 16 people died on Everest in 2014. I think almost all in one day. Um, what? Yeah, wow. Because of the 2014 Mount Everest avalanche. On April 18th, Seracs on the western spur of Everest in the same area as the 1970 disaster failed with a block, the size, a block of ice the size of a Beverly Hills mansion breaking off from the icefall and creating an avalanche. This killed 16 Sherpas who were climbing to fix ropes and prepare the route for clients during the upcoming season. And this is also around the time when I, I think I found this story, um, the story of Into Thin Air and the 1996 disaster. So it was like really weird to be like, oh, I wonder what Everest is looking like this year and see it's, oh no, this is now the deadliest year. It was yeah, very wow. strange. Five. So when they made that movie, it, that was the deadliest year yeah. of Everest's existence. Yeah, because the second unit crew of the film Everest from 2015 uh, and again, that's about the 1996 tragedy. They were filming nearby at the time, but they suffered no injuries or fatalities. Sherpas involved with the film shoot did give assistance after the avalanche. Um, five of the Sherpas that were killed were preparing for an upcoming Discovery Channel special about the first attempted base jump from the mountain. Huh. That was canceled. I think it was turned into a documentary about the disaster. Again, it, it seems unfair that it's the Sherpas who die and not the guy who was going to base jump off the mountain. Well, again, this is mid-April. This is when they're, yeah, they were all climbing to fix ropes and, and such. So that's why they all kind of got wiped out at once. Thirteen bodies were recovered, and three are still buried in roughly 260 to 330 feet of snow and ice. Some of the dead were brought down and cremated in a Buddhist ceremony. The next year, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck Nepal and the surrounding areas on April 25, 2015. Mm -hmm. Tremors from the quake triggered a devastating avalanche from Pumori, a mountain eight kilometers west of Mount Everest, right into Everest's base camp, which is at the bottom of the mountain. Between 19 and 24 people were killed, 
instantly surpassing the tragedy of the year before. And they were... They were just at base camp. They weren't even climbing at yeah, this point. barely on the mountain. Yeah. Between uh, 700 and 1,000 people were on or near the mountain when the quake struck, including 359 climbers in the base camp area, many of whom were returning mountaineers that had boarded their summiting hopes during the previously deadly season. The death toll included 11 Nepalese Sherpas, one Australian Indian, and four Americans, including Dan Friedenberg, who was a Google executive climbing to map the area for a future Google Earth-type project. So they were all killed. After a second earthquake on the 12th, the mountain was fully closed, and no one summited that year for the first time in 41 years, as we mentioned. 2020 was the second time this would happen due to closure from COVID. Mm -hmm. As the mountain becomes more and more busy, the fatalities continue despite the Sherpas mobilizing to demand better wages and safety after the one-two punch of the 2014 and 2015 seasons. You know, uh, COVID seems like the one danger you wouldn't really have to worry about on Everest. (laughs) After a certain point, there's pretty thin air and you're wearing a mask and you're, like, you're wearing a mask. Well, and, uh, but people couldn't come into the country, maybe, you know, there's a whole whole list of reasons, probably. Yeah, fair enough, I guess. Base camp. It seems surprising that most of these deaths occur during descent rather than ascent, aside from, you know, these massive accidents. But it seems many succumb to exhaustion, hypothermia, altitude sickness, or other accidents. Um, You know, you summit and then you're already exhausted and you still have to get down safely. This year, 2021, we had four deaths, two Sherpas, one of whom fell into a crevasse, and two climbers who died from exhaustion. Now over 200 bodies remain on Everest, some buried or in crevasses, but some are still right out in the open. Accidents will likely continue because, like we said, global warming, and as glaciers melt, this will probably also expose long-buried bodies on the mountain, too. So it might get more colorful and not less? Probably, yeah. So why, why do people do it? The pithy reason is as George Mallory quipped, because it's there. But why do people continue to strive for this achievement despite the near superhuman effort required and a high chance of death, which has gone up to, I mean, it depends on your age range and such. It's been up to a staggering nearly one in four. If you don't think you're one of the most skilled climbers in the world, <laughs> don't I, do it. I don't know why you would do this. Yeah. It's easy for me to research and discuss this topic, knowing full well I would never even think of attempting something like this. Not only because of the physical intensity, which I would certainly never be able to surmount, but the chance of a horrible death. That's a high chance. Even if it's down to 1%, why take the risk? Yeah, not everyone who has $65,000 should be climbing the (laughs) tallest mountain in the world. I mean, maybe the whole thing boils down to no risk, no reward. Because, you know, though... though But, But what's the reward? In this case, the only reward... Is the risk. The only reward is that you overcame this very difficult, very dangerous thing. Again, I can't even imagine the view is very good from the top because you're surrounded by cloud cover. Well, it depends. Some days are are clearer than others. Um, Over 5,000 people have summited since Hillary and Norgay's first successful ascent and descent in 1953. 
but it's still a remarkable accomplishment that you typically wouldn't have duplicates of in the same group or family, you know? If I climb Everest, I'm probably not going to ever run into someone else unless I'm in a certain kind of circle, you know? The Explorers Club in New York. (laughs) It's a massive brag, and beyond that, many find peace in climbing, and so they certainly uh, must find deep satisfaction in realizing such a monumental goal, as you would anything. Uh, Even despite having to climb over the bodies of others in the Rainbow Valley to get there, I suppose. It's like, it's... I think very similar to a marathon where you do a marathon to accomplish a very difficult goal. Uh, it's not obviously as dangerous or as difficult no, as not nearly. climbing Everest, but, but I mean, on a small scale, I think people do a marathon to do something very hard that they can then tell people, oh yeah, that time I ran a marathon. Yeah. And it's kind of shorthand, like, well, it's not climbing Everest, you know, like it's, it's like, I'm not a rocket scientist. It's the thing. It's the num. it's the, the pinnacle literally as for myself i uh, i don't think i would ever uh, even think of doing anything like that i prefer the seashore to a mountaintop anyway what about you sean would you ever climb everest oh let's hit the uh, old sleeping giant state park here in connecticut <laughs> first we'll try to work up to it yeah i don't think so The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. You're here, which means you love podcasts, but are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals free during your trial, and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid, but between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Stephen Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. It's Crying Saucers. Mm. 
According to Coast to Coast, an anomaly hunter scouring NASA images for intriguing oddities on Mars spotted what appears to be a crashed flying saucer on the surface of the red planet. If it was on Coast to Coast, it's legit. (laughs) Researcher Jean Ward made the discovery when he was looking at a photo taken by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter back in December 2006. Apparently, the strange anomaly hadn't been spotted till now. Okay, what what are we looking at? This is a picture of, the, I guess, Mars's surface? Yeah, definitely go look the picture up, but according to Ward's YouTube video, it basically appears like a strange object with a rounded edge, half buried in the Martian dirt with like a large streak behind it. Almost like it came in for a sliding landing. The object comparatively with everything else, uh, appears to be about 40 to 50 feet in diameter. Ward theorized that the oddity could be some kind of disc-shaped ship that hit the surface of Mars at a very low angle, or it might be indicative of a ramp leading into an underground entrance. A YouTube commenter posited that maybe it was a, quote, teenaged gray taking dad's cruiser out for a joyride. I love it. That That is the most likely um, scenario. <laughs> Here's what I love. The, the Occam's razor of it all, right, is like, why can't it just, even if it is a silver disc buried in the moon, why would you jump to craft it's and Mars. not a, a circular craft, even if it's a circular a disc buried in the Martian sand? Well, it's very big. And also, what else would it be? Just any round object that fell from space, you know what I mean? Like a, things a don't meteor. just fall from space. Sure, they do. They're called meteorites, <laughs> but they usually wouldn't slide like this. They it would, would just be like a crater, right? They would usually. They wouldn't hit our atmosphere at an angle. They wouldn't hit Earth at an angle like that. I think because our atmosphere would burn stuff up if it came in at an angle like that. So I guess it depends on how Mars would allow it in. Mars doesn't have an atmosphere. Well, I don't know. That's why it Just surfaces. I bring all, it up. That's why it surfaces all covered in craters. Stuff hits it all the time. I don't know. Yeah, this is interesting. I just don't think people, it's a spaceship. Yeah, people do this. It reminds me of like the face on Mars. Do you remember that? From I feel like I was in elementary school or something when that was a big thing. I'll do you one better. Did you know there's a man on the moon? <sighs> there's a man in the moon. There has been a man on the moon. Okay, pet ant. Tell me about the Martian face. <laughs> No, uh, look it up. It's a um it's it's what people thought was kind of a, the equivalent of like a Martian Easter Island head. It was just the, a giant face-looking thing, but it was probably just happened to be a face-looking mound of stuff. That's all. Face-looking mound of stuff. <laughs> the Carrie Ferrante story. Wow. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Don't forget to screenshot your five-star reviews and share with us on social media for your chance to win a gift straight from us. 
That's right. Um, we're going to give special thanks, as always, to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. Uh, consider joining us over there on Patreon, guys. No pressure. Please continue to enjoy this show for free. But also, um, the only financial support this show gets is um, when you happen to patronize one of our ad sponsors or um get at us over on patreon and we have plenty of fun uh, stuff for your dollar uh, we have our second interview straight um we on the paul is dead beatles conspiracy that caroline covered for us a couple of weeks ago that's coming out this week and um here's a little peek behind the kimono next <laughs> week we've got some christmas content coming on the pod and uh we'll have a little bit of christmas related um well, a return to our Ain't It Kitchy series, talking about Christmas novelty songs. Um, that'll be on Patreon next week. So we're trying to get into a pretty weekly schedule as we get into the new year here. That'll be a resolution. Um, so it's a great time to join us on Patreon. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. And you can check Kyle out at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.